Hey guys, and welcome to The One Up Project. We're simplifying all things finance and lifestyle in a relaxed environment. It's all just a bit of fun, so be sure to keep listening and let the content be a catalyst for your own self-improvement. Kia ora and welcome back to The One Up Project podcast, everyone. Today, I bring on the co-founder and managing director of Simplicity, a non-profit fund manager, Sam Stubbs. How are you, Sam? Hi, g'day, kia ora. Thank you for being here. Um, Simplicity actually holds a, a special place on this podcast because your previous head of comms and education gave this potty a shot before it had even launched um, Amanda. So I couldn't be more. Oh, no, cool. Well, yeah. Well, f- full disclosure, she's also my partner. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, my yeah. God. That's yeah, so amazing. funny. Yeah. So Amanda and I and two others co founded it oh, from what? our kitchen table. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't even know that. That is so yeah. funny. Oh, well, I'm glad yeah. she was um, awesome and like, yeah, just so happy to to have her support on it. It was, um, yeah. Just oh, lovely. Great. Oh, awesome. Yeah, no, she's fantastic, Amanda. Yeah. Cool. She's, well, obviously I'm biased. Yeah. <laughs> of I think course. she's completely wonderful. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Cool. So I'm really excited to um, talk to you a bit about, I guess, your journey and what's um, what you've done throughout that. And I'd love if we could start by talking about what your day-to-day kind of looks like currently as the Managing Director of Simplicity yeah, and what sure. motivates you kind of generally in your role. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, no two days are the same, right? So particularly in COVID, I mean, it's definitely no two days are the same. But mm. um, when you're sort of managing billions of dollars and you have, you know, 22 people working for you and then we've got 63 volunteers as well, so in any one day, there's going to be some mix, you know, they're going to be, you know, um, I guess is the, 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 you know, the job of the job of running any business is kind of like being a puppeteer, right? You, all you got to do is make these little tweaks and just make sure that the puppet's working, you know, and, mm. you know, doing what you said it would do. And the thing about doing that is, is that that's generally small adjustments and it's generally revolves around people. So um, my, I mean, I think I'm sort of more an HR manager. You know, simplicity works incredibly well when the people who do the real work, which is not me, I just do the talking, right? The people who do the walking, the real working, when they are happy and motivated and satisfied, then the thing runs smoothly. Mm-hmm. As soon as they're not, it doesn't matter what I do, it goes off the rails, right? So my job is to help the team be incredibly happy and motivated. And I guess um, the other thing that I do is I guess I'm the, the head sort of you know salesperson. You know, I'm the face of the business to a certain extent. So, um, and I guess I'm sort of paid to be the strategic thinker as well. So go out and think about the big new initiatives and so on. But, um, you know, we have an interesting uh, thing at Simplicity. No one gets paid more than anyone else who's senior. And I really don't think that my role is any more important than any one of anyone's, really. It, it's sort of just different. Lots of talking, lots of meetings. So much fun. You know, we're building something really pretty special here with a huge give back, eh? You know, every day now we're saving our members about $85,000 a day in fees and we're giving away about $5,000 a day to charity, you know, and we just announced we're going to build a whole lot of affordable homes and we're providing the cheapest mortgages and all those sorts of things. And um, it's all goodness. You know, I firmly believe that you can you can make money and do good. Absolutely. Uh, uh, or the other way around, actually, you can do good and make money. And uh, we just, so my job is to, you know, help make that happen. So talk about, you know, purpose and passion and, you know, it's fantastic. I've got the best job in the world. <laughs> yeah, that's so cool. And that like focus on 
on people and how that sort of driving purpose and passion was that something that you always had a focus on or developed kind of more of a streamlined focus on over time yeah um look you know i'm a lot lot older than you right a lot older than you so you go through in life you go through phases right so i grew up as a westie i'm from sunnyvale in, you know, between Henderson and Glenmead, and um, that was awesome because I had, I like, you know, I've made one one spectacular decision in life. I chose my parents really well, right? Yeah. They were both school teachers, primary and secondary school teachers, and um, they just gave you values. And you know, I had a typical, you know, Kiwi middle class life, which was, you know, bareback riding horses in the pony club and jumping down the bamboo bush and building hearts and you know stealing peaches and getting my ass shot with a salt gun from the, you know, the orchards. And it was a sort of a semi-rural life back then. West Auckland wasn't quite so well built up. And, but my parents gave me values and you just, you know, you learn to survive, right? And then I went to Kelston Boys High School and I was like a thin, weedy, nerdy guy. And uh, it was a jungle that, you know, school, a big rugby school. And so I had to learn to survive there. So, um, uh, and then that, that was one phase. It was a very normal New Zealand childhood day. In fact, in many ways, idyllic, you know. Um, and then I went through this investment banker or investment wanker phase, right, where I discovered money and, and became quite materialistic. And that was back in those days when it was worshipped, you know, the sort of the 1990s when, you know, greed was good and all this sort of thing. And I just went off to London and made lots of money and, you know, I thought that was cool. And and then when I got to about 45 in age, I started looking in the, well, a bit younger, about 40 actually, I started looking in the mirror and saying, nah, you know, I'm in a fancy house and I've got money and, you know, the outside is great, but I'm not feeling uh, soulful. I'm not feeling as if what I'm doing is actually looking after the people where I came from in Sunnyvale. And that sort of creeps up on you, eh? It just takes a little while because money's very seductive and and you fall into a pattern of life of comparing yourself against others and caring what other people think. And But it was like drip, 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 drip. And then I got to the point where I thought, this is really, I don't want this anymore, right? There's no amount of money is going to make me happier. And I was very lucky because, you know, I had plenty of money. And so I decided to give back. And so I, I had the standard midlife crisis, right? So, you know, you, you haven't had one of those yet. <laughs> But trust me, you will. <laughs> Everyone does. And my midlife crisis was, I don't know what I'm doing here and I don't know why I'm, I'm working and making ever more money for rich people. So I um, retired, basically, and went planting trees and doing a bit of charity work and just chilling out for a year. And then I decided, look, you know, I want to give back. How do I do that? And so I got together with a bunch of the co-founders of Simplicity and we sat around a she was in a pub, actually, and nice. sat on a blank sheet of paper and said, how do we change the world? And uh, what we've done with simplicity is exactly what's on that piece of paper. I wish I'd kept it, actually. Yeah. Uh, it really was um, just taking our skills, right, because you acquire these skills and then you say, okay, we're going to become a gamekeeper turned poacher. We're going to take on our industry because we know how they operate. We know why they make so much money. We're going to do it completely for the investors and our members run a non-profit, have it owned by a charity and just go for it and, and do it online. There's no epiphany. There was no, you know, near-death moment. There was, you know, nothing dramatic about it all. It was just this gnawing dissatisfaction with not looking after people, basically. Yeah, and I suppose that would have been quite a massive contrast to your um, investment banker experience. And when you did enter that 
kind of corporate world while you were young and before you'd had all these kind of realizations was there anything that in that experience whether good or bad that you still draw on today what I learned from that actually funny enough it's interesting because I worked for Goldman Sachs right I don't know if you heard of Goldman Sachs right they're considered the vampire squid of investment banks the most aggressive and so on but with an organization that big um, there are pockets of subcultures right and I was in the subculture in Goldman Sachs which was the most collegial environment I've ever worked in with the best bosses I've ever had, hands down. And um, I learned the value of teamwork there, which is really strange, eh, for an aggressive, mm. you know, things are never black or white, right? So you think Goldman Sachs, everyone's eating themselves. No, no, no. The secret of that firm is teamwork within the firm. Very aggressive outside, very, very, very successful and aggressive. But inside, total teamwork within huge parts of the bank. So I was there. So I learned the value of teamwork. I learned the the, the 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 value of just sheer dogmatism and hard work. You know, like, I don't know, do you go to the gym? You know, when, when I'm at Les Mills here and I'm sort of trying to pretend to be 10 years younger than I am, right, I go up to the squat bar and there's this thing, you know, it's success is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. And you know what? They're bloody well right. You know, so what you learn is, and I used to get up at half past four in the morning, to get on a plane, to fly to Frankfurt, and then get on a plane and fly to Milan, and then get on a plane and fly to Stockholm, and then I'd get home, and it'd be 11 o'clock at night. I would have been to three European cities. It's not glamorous, trust me. You get in a cab, you go to a meeting, you get in a cab, you go back again, and it's just bloody hard work, and you do that day after day after day, and you sort of, you know, grind you down a little bit, but you actually learn that, you know, making it is it always involves hard work. There's no shortcuts. And, and um, you can be smart about it, but you've still got to do your time and do the hard work. And I worry a little bit about, I'm going to sound like an old man here, I worry a little bit about the younger generation and that they actually, because they are so smarter than my generation, so much more purposeful, and they're going to create a much better world than the one that my generation has left you. Like, I apologise, you know, for the environment and all this sort of stuff, right? But the one thing that worries me is the underappreciation of how, in fact, just sheer hard work uh, actually differentiates yourself and you know, gets you to the top. That's what I learned, you know, teamwork, hard work, and then also purpose, right? Because I was working for an organisation that wasn't about anything about doing good. It was all about making money, right? Mm. And so the flip side of that was it, that tweaked my guilt and conscience and then I became social enterprise person. And then another experience... Um that you had that I was reading about was how you made your first thousand dollars. Oh yeah. Be able to tell us that story and yeah. I guess the things that you pull might even pull from that today. Yeah, look, this makes me feel really old, eh? So <laughs> a long time ago, before cell phones, before extensions, you could only have one telephone. One telephone in the house and it was supplied by the post office. And have you seen oh, those God. rotary dials that they used to do? Yeah, I've seen them in movies. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've got, we've got one here. Actually, I'm gonna, I'm, can, can you wait for 30 seconds? Yeah. I'm going to give you one. Hold on. So here's the phone that everyone used to have. I found one in a second-hand shop, right? Yeah. So here's how I do My son, who's 18 now, when he went into a museum, he saw one of these and he went trying to push the buttons. Push the buttons. And, of course, it goes like this, right? Mm-hmm. right. So I'll tell, you, I'll tell you an interesting, interesting story about this phone. This thing here is what they call a rotary counter, a thing that goes tick, 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 tick. And actually what happens is if you click on this thing here and you do, if you want to dial the number three, yeah. 
you do 10 minus 3 equals 7. If you go 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, that's the equivalent of dialing 3, right? So if you went into a phone booth back in those days, the post office, like toll calls to England used to cost a dollar a minute. Mm. And back then that was a lot of money, right? But you could go to a phone booth, a public, you know those red public phone booths? You could go and you could tap an international number and it would hotwire the thing. So you could get a free call to London if, you know, if the number was four, four, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah. If you tapped it enough, you could get a free call to London. Anyway, that was my misspent youth. But anyway, so they used to have these phones, right? You could only have one, the post office. Legally, you weren't allowed to have two phones in your house. And that was the only time you could ever dial anyone. By the way, you know how you have, you know, texts and messages and yeah. you send it to your mates. Partners. If you were to meet in town, you had to phone these people. There was no answer phones. They had to answer the phone. You had to agree to meet and then you would leave and you could not change your plans. Mm. Couldn't change your plans, but you had to be there because there's no other way of contacting anyone, right? So these phones have a lot of transistors in, inside them and a lot of electronics. So when I was 11, a friend of mine, Eddie, from our intermediate school, he and I found, we used to do this thing called scrounging. And what was, we used to get our bikes and go into Henderson we used to climb into the jumbo bins of all the light industrial things and, and scrounge stuff. And then we used to swap it at school or trade it on this. There was a, used to be this magazine called Trade and Exchange. There was no trade me. Trade you put an ad in. But we used to swap it and sell it and so on and so forth. So I'm going to tell you something sort of naughty and incredibly un-PC here, right? But one time I found a whole load of Playboy magazines, yeah. Soft, soft porn, right? So I became the soft porn king of Calston boys there for a while. I was trading them for sellotape and right, we used to trade sellotape for bike parts for anyway, anyway. So we found the post office repair shop. We found the jumbo bin, which had a whole lot of spare parts of these things and uh, because they threw them out when they weren't working. Right. So we would take them and we would repair them. Every now and again, we'd sneak in and ask for a new part inside there'd be a transistor or a board or something which was broken the guys thought it was hilarious these 11 year olds you know building these phones so what we would then do is we'd go around and we would say to people do you want to have an extension of your phone in your house do you want to have a, a phone in your bedroom right because normally everyone had a phone in their kitchen mm. we said we can put an extension in your bedroom or we can put even one in your toilet so eddie who i did this with he had nine phones in his house oh my right? God. yeah yeah I think we had five, um, and um, we would install them. And it was basically, I'm trying to remember the price now, I think it was $30 if we liked you and 20, oh, no, $20 if we liked you and $30 if we didn't, uh, Yeah. right? Smart. And so we would get cash, and that's how we made my first $1,000 was installing illegal extensions. These were illegal. The post office never, you know, ever, you know the, the, the guys in the repair shop thought it was hilarious that we were yeah. doing illegal extensions. So that's how I made my first grand, was installing phones like this in houses. What did that teach me? Um, <laughs> there are no limits, really, eh? Yeah. Like, you know, you just go and hustle. You find this stuff. You know, let's think about it at the biggest possible scale, Elon Musk, right? If someone had said, to, if Elon Musk had said, I want to set up this spaceship, I want to go and I want to build electric cars, and at the same time, I want to build um, underground tunnels that, if you get, you, they just go, you're mad. You're just mad. You know, just crazy, loopy. What does he do? He goes and does it. As with anyone who does anything, right? At the time, it's not immediately obvious, but you just go and make it happen. So there's really no limitations to what you can do. 
but you've got to do it. You've got to try and do it. And you'll fail, you know. Took us a long time to work out how to fix these things, you know, uh, and, and scavenge the parts and wait for the parts and all this sort of stuff. Um, but, yeah, that's what I learned, you know. Just get, get out there and hustle and give it a go. With giving things a go, and I guess touching back on what you were even saying around our generation and maybe not valuing hard work as much as we should. Like I'm sure there are some challenges that came with building what simplicity is now. So how do you navigate, yeah. I guess, setbacks both in simplicity and in general and avoid letting that hinder your own motivation? You know, I don't know because I'm just the sort of person who doesn't give up. Hmm. I just don't take no for an answer, but I know that it's fairly easy to take no for an answer, isn't it? You know, so so... It depends on how you are as a person. I think that if you learn, what's the phrase I use, grit or resilience? Mm. And sometimes you'll learn it by working on the farm and having to get up and milk the cows at five o'clock in the morning or some, you know, I used to have paper runs. I used to get up in the morning and deliver 130 newspapers every morning. And you got to do that whether it's rain, hail or shine. You got to get out there and do it, right? And so I think that you learn grit. I think there's a, Oh God, I'm look, I'm so sounding like an old man, eh? But 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 you know, I'm a father of father of children and so on. And 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 but you know, I really think that chores and jobs and part time jobs and all those things doesn't matter about the money. The money is valuable, but it teaches you habit and resilience and grit and turning up. And you know, um, you're not not you don't have an easy way out. You've got to be there and you've got to do it. And I think that's a really critical thing in life. Mm. So when something goes wrong at Simplicity, and things go wrong here all the time, I mean, not big things, but little things go wrong here all the time, um, you know, you just think, well, okay, in the perspective of, of the grand scheme of things, it's like another rainfall when I'm delivering the papers. Mm. You know, the rain will go away and the sun will come out again and we'll just move on and, and we just deal with it. I think that's the closest I can give you to a sensible answer about developing grit. It just comes with habit in life and just yeah. getting in and doing it, eh? Um, and taking a risk. The amazing thing about youth, I mean, when I look at young people today, I'm mean, just so envious of them, eh? Because, well, I can talk about why they're coming into one of the best times in history to live in. I mean, you have no idea how good things are going to be, particularly in New Zealand. I can talk through that. But, you know, I look at them and I think, well, they have just this incredibly luxurious thing that I will never have again. That's time. You know, they've got time to take a risk make a mistake, learn something from it, pick themselves up and go again. Mm. You know, you could set up three or four or five businesses and they could all fail and you'd still be young. You still have all the time in the world to do the one that's successful, eh? So what I'm trying to do with my kids and my friends' kids is give them a shake and say, take a risk, go for it. Go for your dreams. It doesn't matter if you fail. You've got all the time in the world. Mm. You know, and, and that will be a learning experience. I'd love to yeah. hear more about why we're coming into the the best time. Oh, yeah. So good. It's so good. Look, you know, like you're being dished up this huge media frenzy about the world going wrong, right? We're all going to melt. Let me, be, let me be the optimist, right? Anyone who's ever bet against the human race has pretty much lost in the long term, right? We're pretty good at solving problems. So when I was young, the problem was nuclear war. It was the world running out of oil. It was various wars that went on and so on and so forth. And it, in, in my life, I had various stages where it's the accepted wisdom has been it's all over. We're all going to die. You know, I used to I used to be in a school where we had nuclear drills, 
right, in England, climb under your table, we all thought the world was going to end. So you, you don't you don't bet against the human race. We're pretty pretty good at making lives better. Secondly is the vast majority of people are much better off than they've ever been before, right? They're wealthier and better off. There is inequity for sure, and there are some major social problems and some places, but generally people are getting better. But here's why I'm so optimistic. If you have a look at New Zealand, the New Zealand I grew up on grew up in was what I call capital poor. There wasn't enough money to do anything. And also, it was deeply sexist and racist as an organiser. If you were a woman when I grew up, you really did start three steps behind. It was so much harder to get ahead. You're still one step behind. I'm not pretending that it's nirvana, right? But it's much easier than it used to be. So if you're a woman, I think it's definitely better. If you're Maori or Pacifica, it is, it's still not nearly good enough, but it's better. But what the New Zealand we're all going into, every single one of us, is one where we've always had great people, cool ideas, but not enough money. And if you look at, for example, great companies, companies are an idea, people, and money. Well, the ideas, I mean, this is a smartphone, right? Every idea in the world's on the smartphone now. There's no, there's no premium for ideas. Everyone has access to it. So that's great for everybody, right? Same ideas. They're... Great people are everywhere. If you can find great people, they're always there. But there was always a shortage of money, which is why businesses and New Zealand generally didn't succeed or wasn't as rich as other countries and didn't give as many opportunities. Now, for things like KiwiSaver, there's a whole lot more money around for a really good idea. So if you're starting up a company these days, it's so much easier to raise money than it used to be. And, and New Zealanders have got an idea of, of the, the sort of like this enthusiasm for risk, taking risks and backing businesses and so on. So I think that for the majority, and remember, by the time you add Maori, Pacifica, and women, you're talking about the majority of New Zealanders have more opportunities now, funded by a whole lot of money that we're saving. I mean, you have a look at Australia, right? We saved $80 billion in KiwiSaver. The Treasury tells us it'll be $200 billion by 2030, right? That's like a rising tide of money. Every single day the New Zealand stock market gets about another $10 million a day of net KiwiSaver investment. And like a rising tide, you know, you don't notice it. You've got to turn around and say, oh, the tide's gone up. And so with all of that money coming in, that's opportunity, opportunity to start up companies, opportunities to grow companies. And, you know, the problems of having more money are way better than the problems of having too little, eh? Poverty sucks. And so New Zealand is just going to get richer. And that means that the opportunity for your generation is going to be so much better. Because if you have a great idea, A, the chances of you being able to do something about it are greater, and B, the money to make it even better will, will be caught. And by the way, that extra money means more tax revenue to build the hospitals, the schools, fund the social welfare programs, build the affordable housing, all that sort of stuff. So I think it's a very, very cool time. I'm hugely optimistic. I think the next two or three decades will be the best time almost ever to have lived in New Zealand. And the reason I say, I'm not just guy, you know, this guy on a pulpit just you know, evangelising. Look at Singapore, look at Australia, look at the UK, look at all these countries where they've started to have national savings plans. Why are the Singaporeans so much richer than New Zealanders? Well, one of the reasons is they've saved a lot more money. Even look at Australia. We have $87 billion saved in QB7 now. Do you know how much the Aussies have got? $2 trillion. Wow. We've got 87 billion. They've got 2,000 billion. Why is the average Aussie 20% richer than the average New Zealander? Because they've had all this money 
And, you know, right up until COVID, guess how many years Australia didn't have a recession for? Didn't have an economic recession for 27 years. Wow. It says, how did that happen? Because they, they sell iron ore, right? Everyone thinks, well, the Aussies are rich because of iron ore, right? Well, the Congo has got the same mineral profile as Australia. Why is the Congo poor and Australia rich? It's because if your economy depends on the price of iron ore, it'll be a boom or bust economy, right? Or the price of oil. No, no, no. What the Aussies did was when they sold this stuff, they were always saving, 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 savings. And their pension funds were building the roads, building the buildings, building the hospitals. And, of course, when you had a downturn, when the iron ore price went down, you still had all of these pension funds with all the savings. So the building sites carried on. The buildings carried on getting built. The businesses carried on getting funded. And that means that even though you could have, a, you know, like in New Zealand, if the price of milk drops, it won't have as much of a significance if pension funds like ours or KiwiSafe funds like ours are still investing in building companies and building buildings. And that smooths out the economic cycle. So it means you have growth, much more consistent growth. And because you have much more consistent growth, people put more money in. They invest with more confidence, right? Because it's not boom or bust. So when you, look, it's just like your own personal life, right? If you save a little every week, it's amazing how rich you feel. Mm. And it's amazing how many more choices you have later on in life. It's, it's just the same for an economy. Mm. An economy is no different than your personal finances. So the more you save, the more you'll have. The more you've invested, the money that makes money will make more money. And you get the power of compounding interest working for you. And then suddenly you have a Singapore and Australia, a Switzerland. You know, you have those sort of economies that have saved a lot of money in their pension funds. They are richer, they are richer economies. People are much better off. That's the world that your generation is about to go into. It's not immediately obvious, eh? Not at all. And it's nice to actually hear a practically optimistic view on it. So let's look at the, 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 the grand issue of your generation right the environment okay i apologize again for the environment right we did a lot of good shit like we gave you the internet but we also gave you global warming right so how do you deal with the, the climate well you know what it's going to take lots of money mm. if you're talking about building solar farms electric cars windmills who knows what it will do right carbon sequestration planting of billions of trees all of that takes money and if you either have it or you don't, right? So why is it that rich countries are bigger polluters, but they're also more capable of addressing that pollution? Mm. Because new technologies take money and innovation takes money. So, you know, the fact that there is this money around is really optimistic for the remediation of the environmental problems. And also a lot of that money is in social enterprise. I mean, look at what Simplicity does. We we plant a, a native tree for every member we take on and we get a, we're building affordable homes now, we're going to make them completely carbon neutral, right? We're going to sequester all the carbon in the building of the home. And that will be, that's only because we can afford it, right? You've got to be able to buy the trees and plant them. They don't just mm. appear, <laughs> you know? So, so that's why I'm so optimistic about the environment getting, well, actually, I'm not that optimistic about, you know, there's a, it's the huge problem of our age. But not much will happen without money. Yeah. And I think also knowing that we have so much more access to just information in general as younger people now means that we maybe feel like we have a lot more options 
and freedom to make choices in our personal life and kind of attack some of these issues as well. Totally. So, I mean, your power as consumers is fantastic, right? You know, I get emails every day from members saying, why are you investing in this? Why aren't you doing this? You know, and that's because they know, right? Yeah. You know, um, you know, we show we show where every dollar is invested every day in your own fund, right? So you get to see where every cent is, every company that's invested in. It's a huge amount of transparency, right? You're giving help giving a lot to charity too, which is fantastic, yeah? Definitely. And also we're a real shareholder activist, aren't we? You know, there's, mm. like, there's no one racks it up more than we do with the companies and we're about to, about to do that even more now. Yeah, absolutely. About, you know, gender pay parity and all that sort of stuff. There are important issues, you know, because if you think about, if you think about a great investment, what, what makes a great company, eh? We talked about ideas, they're everywhere. There's more money. It's always the people, eh? Mm. So if, if you think about, it's interesting when you have an investor's hat on, right? So I'm an old white guy, right? So you think, okay, well, what, what does he care about gender equality other than is he just saying it, right? Mm. You think about it, let, let's take the politics out of it for just a second. Let's just think about it in terms of pure investment returns. That's what I'm doing. I want to make you the most amount of money to give you choices and dignity in your life, right? Mm. Later on in life, we just want to give the elderly people dignity in life. So how do you make that money? Well, it's very simple from our point of view. A society that does not have true equality of opportunity across gender and race means there is a narrower talent pool. You're just not diving into the deepest, widest well of talent you possibly could. That is a massive competitive advantage in a world where people will be the differentiator in company success. It used to be having a good idea, right? If you were Thomas Edison and you had the idea for the light bulb, instant wealth, right? Then back when I was young, it used to be access to capital. You used to be able to get onto the shareholder. You used to have to, getting money was important because you had to build factories and you had to build all this infrastructure to be a successful company. Those things are gone now. Businesses are online. They don't need that much money. All of the ideas are there. So what makes a great company? People, the best people. If you're not drawing from the deepest, widest pool of talent, you're stuffed. Mm. So it's not whether it's, to me, it's of course it's the world we want to live in. I have a daughter, and you know, you know, of course I want to, I, I want her to have the same opportunity. But from a pure investment point of view, all by itself, sexism and racism is just st- the stupidest investment, like just the dumbest thing you could do, consciously or unconsciously, because you just won't build a successful company. You can't. It's illogical. Yeah. You know, and now I know you know that. That's been a revelation for my generation, right? Mm. But it's so damn true, eh? So being a shareholder activist on those things, from my point of view, is regardless of the politics, it's all about making you more money. Mm. And, and and that's just investment 101. Yeah, I love it. I think yeah. it's very clear from being, I guess, involved in simplicity, not only with having my KiwiSaver there, but also... Um, just watching what you guys do, it's it's very clear that your values are strong in that respect, which I think as an investor, um, it's it's important to see for sure. And I, I suppose in addition to what you were saying, like a lot of my listeners are keen to start up their own purposeful businesses or passion projects. Yeah, sure. And so along with people, is there anything else that you would, you would say is going to be beneficial when it comes to building companies especially in like a post-covid world yeah look look i would say this uh, what i've learned from really simplicity it's amazing eh? first of all is get the right people 
And by the right people, I mean, there's a whole lot of stuff you're going to have to learn, but get the people with the right heart and drive, the drive and passion, right? So, and, and inevitably, it's not because you want to get rich. It's because you believe in the idea and believe in the project, right? You'll get rich if it's successful. Don't worry about that. The money will look after itself. So you've got to build it. The second thing is be absolutely shameless in asking for help. Mm. You know, when I set up Simplicity, I was oh, where is it? I've got a begging bowl here somewhere. It's called the Simplicity Begging Bowl. I would ask for everything for nothing. Mm. I'd say, this is a purpose. This is what we want to do. This is the difference. Could you please help us because we don't have enough money? And you'd be amazed how many people want to help you mm. in your business and really or at least you know, are prepared to help you up front and maybe you'll offer, if, if it's successful down the line, you'll get paid and all this sort of stuff, right? But be absolutely shameless in asking because all people can say is no, mm. you know? We have this sort of um, English middle classness about being polite and not asking for things and not having hustle and, you know, chutzpah mm. and all this sort of thing. Nah, stuff that. Go for it. Ask for it. Ask for it. All they can say is no. I get guarantee. Look, I'll give you an example. I've asked 64 people to volunteer for simplicity, like one, two, three, or four percent of their time. And these are the best lawyers, the best accountants. Very, I mean, you you know their names, a bunch of their names. I've had one person turn me down. 63 people have said yes. One has said no. And the one who said no, who's a household name who you definitely know, has just come back and said, Can I help? Because I've noticed we were successful. They were just too busy at the time, right? Mm. But every single time I've asked them for just a little bit of help, I haven't asked lawyers to do sausage sizzles. I just ask people to do things in their own area of competence. Just say, could you just help us out a little in the area of competence that you know? And they've all said, yeah, sure, why not? Mm. Most people are really good-hearted. They want you to succeed. So I guess my lesson for anyone doing it is ask and ask and ask and don't be afraid to ask and find the right people and you'll go a long way to making it successful. You know, I don't have all the answers, by the way. I'm no guru, right? I've just done it once with this company. But that, that those are the lessons I learned. No, I think that perspective is so valuable as well. And I think generally young people now, um, especially the ones that I talk to through the podcast, are concerned with creating a career, um, if not a business, you know, through their career, something that they love and, and feel passionate about. Um, yeah, totally. And so it's I think quite important when and you have to be passionate about it eh? yeah because a because it's a competitive world but b also you know what consumers are much smarter they're going to buy from companies with values yeah like you know it's it's now becoming a necessity not a luxury because mm. if you don't have your the values if you're a clothing company that exploits labor you're going to get found out yeah you know, we're living in a transparent world now you can't hide mm. you can't pretend right You've got to do. What would you say to someone who might not have any kind of clear direction on what their what they want to do or what sort of just cause or cause or purpose um, they have for a business or a job? If they don't have that, what would you suggest yeah. that they focus on? So I would say this is sort of a, as a as as a father as well. Is, is don't worry, you're going to find it. Mm-hmm. It took me until I was. 42 <laughs> to find out right it doesn't necessarily yeah. come to everybody early and you don't have to worry that you don't have this great sense of you know um sort of purpose and passion early on in life you can you you, you know you can quite but but while you while you're you know finding out or while you're waiting um 
just um, do something. Just stay involved, stay active. Huh? If you think about the experiences that I've had in life, there have been many times when I haven't known what I'm doing. I've been sort of wandering in the wilderness. But I've been doing something. I've been just been staying involved, staying active, staying in touch with people. And you kind of stumble across it. So I'll give you an example. Like, like you know, I trained in <laughs> 17th century political philosophy. I mean, I don't have a single financial qualification wow. in my life, right? I thought I was going to be an academic. And then I went and worked in the computer industry. Why did I do that? For money. Like they were just going to pay me money and computers sound like I had no idea what computers were. And then I ended up, you know, helping program airline reservation systems. And then I went into merchant banking, what's called merchant banking or investment banking. Why did I do that? For entirely the wrong reasons. I did it because, it, 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 you know, these investment bankers seem to go out with prettier women and drive faster cars than I did. Like, it's just a really bad reason, right, to get involved in that industry. But I did. So, and then I, because I was in that industry, then I acquired, you know, whatever knowledge I have. And then there was an opportunity for me to give back within this industry, which happens to be the most profitable industry in the world and where you can make the biggest difference. Sometimes life takes a random course and don't worry. Don't worry. Mm. <laughs> you know, you, you, you'll stumble across and find it in the most unusual places. Yeah, I think that's a really reassuring perspective as well, Tab, because sometimes we can often, I guess, coming with social media is a lot of comparison. And I suppose sometimes you can think if you're not active oh. on something now, you're wasting time. Yeah, 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 totally. Like your generation has so much pressure. You know, some, somehow you're not succeeding in life unless you found the ultimate job with the most amount of passion yeah. <laughs> and purpose straight away. Come on, you give yourself a break. You'll be very lucky in life if you find a job like that. Most people won't. I'm sure if you are looking for it, you eventually will. But you don't have to find it tomorrow. And it's mm. not as if not having it means your life is a failure. That's a terrible burden you place on yourself. Yeah. You know, the opportunity to give back, the opportunity to give in life comes to you in various forms. It can be as a parent or as a friend or as a child or whatever. But, and, and working is one of those ways, right? Mm. So if you're not getting it at work, just go and volunteer. And who knows what you'll find out. You know, I, simplicity is because I did a lot of navel gazing while I was planting a lot of native trees on Motutapu Island. That's when I had my, if, if there was ever an epiphany, it was then. But it was only after I'd been doing it for six months. I sort of sat down and thought, mm, I could plant a lot of trees and do good here. I feel this is good, but I'm just a labourer. How do I do stuff in scale? How do we make a really big difference? I sort of around and think, mm, well, probably the only thing I know is money, so let's do it in money because I know a whole lot of people are making a whole lot of money from ordinary New Zealanders who shouldn't be. How did that come about? Entirely random. There was no genius, no lightning bolt, and I was 40 in my 40s when it happened. Well, thank you so much for your time. I've got a couple of final questions that we just have to ask you about KiwiSaver. Yeah. yeah, yeah, sure. Go and for it. So the first one being, what are some simple rules that you follow when it comes to growing well? Oh, yeah, really simple. So so uh, first, th there are two things I think you need to do. First of all is you need to just develop a habit, right? Mm -hmm. KiwiSaver is great like that, but just have a habit of saving. If you put a little bit away, you won't miss it. You won't miss it. You just adjust your lifestyle generally. And it's amazing how it grows because you're not paying any attention to it. And it's like that rising tide. And you turn around and go, the tide's risen. So that's the first thing. You just have the habit of saving. Mm. Way better to my mind that you're saving a dollar a day regularly rather than saving $365 once a year and having to make a decision. Yeah. 
you'll be a lot richer to have it. The second thing is I just I just pay massive attention to fees. Mm. You know, uh, uh, fees absolutely screw you in the finance industry. So let me give you an example, right? The average KiwiSaver balance fund will return 5%. So each figure is one finger here is 1% of returns a year, right? The average KiwiSaver fee is 1%. So 1% doesn't sound very much, does it, eh? That's why they always say 1%. They don't say, oh, your fee will be 20% of all your returns. They say, no, it's 1% of your assets, 1%. But 1% is 20% of your returns. So every $5 you make, you pay $1 away, right? Yeah. And that's gone forever. So that doesn't compound up. So that means that actually you are paying, you know, 20% is more like a tax rate, isn't it? Yeah. That's the rate of tax you pay on your earnings, right? So it, 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 that's not a fee, that's a tax. So keeping as much of that in is the key to making more money. And all the surveys, there are these, um, for those of uh, um, listeners of yours who are interested, go to what they call the Standard & Poor's, the SPIVA studies, S-P-I-V-A, and they just, they prove it. They prove that actually low fees is the way to getting higher returns in the long term. So those are the two things. Just be paranoid about fees and just develop the habit of saving. After that, just put it into a diversified KiwiSaver fund and go and do what you enjoy doing, you know. Because I tell you what, I mean, you make money interesting, but money generally is very boring. Totally. You know, you, yeah, you, you just want to get the basics right and just and Absolutely. just let it work for you, eh? Completely agree. Completely yeah, agree. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there are way better things to do in life than worry about money. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and like, this yeah. probably might lead off what you were just saying, but what in your opinion is the most misunderstood aspect of, of KiwiSaver that people should know? I think they misunderstand how dramatically it can grow if you start really early. Mm. So the first piece of advice I give every parent is on the day, well, on the week your child's born, just set up a KiwiSaver and put a dollar a day in. That's all you need to do and you'll be amazed how much that is worth. I think it compounds up to something like $25,000 by the time they're 18. That's a buck a day and no one misses a dollar a day. Mm. Well, very, very few people, right? You've got to be really desperately poor for a dollar a day to, to make a big difference to your lifestyle. So, um, yeah, people misunderstand the power of compounding interest. Do you oh. agree, by the way, or what, what do you think is the most misunderstood thing? I think the whole thing is misunderstood commonly by oh, really? a lot yeah. of people. I think something I've had to focus on is letting people know that it's an investment, number one. You're not just putting away money. So, yeah, the compounding part of it is definitely misunderstood. And even just little little things that can help people get ahead, like which fund you're in can determine what your returns are long term. And, you know, the government contributes. Um, yeah certain amount each year if you contribute a certain amount so little things like that that people either forget or aren't sure of because when they first sign up they're like yep just chuck me in whatever and it'll be fine kind of thing is yeah. generally or well, that's at least how I approached it I had no idea what I was doing and no one yeah. told me anything understanding just those basic things about it can as you would know drastically transform the result for yourself yeah. when you choose to take it out it's a shame, isn't it? Because a lot of our industry wants people to be ignorant about money. They want them to be ignorant and apathetic because that's how they make so much money out of them. Yeah. It really annoys me when I see these bank billboards and they're always happy families jumping into the swimming pool. Yeah. What's that got to do with money? Yeah. Well, what, what, what the, the subliminal message is money's really difficult and complex. Just give it to us mm. and you can go swimming, right? That's exactly the wrong thing 
Yeah. You know, the fundamental message should be actually money is pretty simple. You get the basics right and you'll be sorted. And then you can, you know, you can afford to go swimming, afford to go on holiday to go swimming, you know. But our, our industry doesn't do that. It's one thing that really annoys me about our industry. Mm. It doesn't do the basic education it should. Now, our industry last year charged $567 million in KiwiSaver fees. I bet you the amount of that that went to edu- proper education, it's a tiny fraction. Mm. Probably almost unmeasurable. It was so small. So, you know, our, 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 and that's because our industry, yeah, it, it thrives on ignorance and apathy. That's how it makes so much money. And I think ultimately yeah. that leads to people feeling so much more trapped within their financial situation, like they can't yeah. make any decision with it. And like that's a yeah. big thing for the podcast and me is being able to let, like help people to feel like they can make decisions and ultimately yeah. live their life how they want to, not because they feel kind of trapped by money. Totally. You know, money should give you choices and dignity in life, right? Mm. It shouldn't give you stress and anxiety. Mm. It just shouldn't. Exactly. Uh, yeah, no, no, I, and I really, really applaud what you're doing because, and this is one of the things I'm actually very optimistic about, um, you know, the future is because there's a whole generation of people coming through now that do have more knowledge. I mean, they are learning. Mm. I mean, you know, places like Sharesies and so on are just doing a fantastic job of demystifying money, right? You know, like the sheer action of just buying and selling and seeing what happens. I mean, you're just learning, you yeah. know, it's... You know, there's book learning and there's learning by doing, right? This is learning by doing, which was awesome. Eh? Platforms like yourself are doing wonderful things too. So th- thank you very much for, I mean, because this is your give back, right? Yeah, exactly. It is. Totally yeah. it is. It's totally awesome. Yeah. No, I appreciate thank it. You. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much for your time. Like, it's been no, so awesome welcome. talking to you and um, yeah, really appreciate it. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening. I really hope you were able to take something valuable away. Um, Be sure to subscribe and keep up with the socials for further episodes at The One Up Project, and I'll catch you on the next one.